who made DoorDash work. It's people who cook food. It's people who eat food. It's people who ride bikes and deliver food. They didn't benefit financially at all from the DoorDash IPO. But with digital assets, we're starting to democratize access to these growing companies. And more importantly, you're starting to spread out that wealth inequality because with the rise of digital assets, you now have your developers, your founders, your early investors, your customers, your liquidity providers. All of them are equally incentivized financially to help bootstrap the growth of a company. And when it does succeed, all of a sudden that hundreds of billions of dollars doesn't just go 90% of it to investors. It gets distributed across all of the people who made that project work. Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is the features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk's daily opinions section. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And now here he is, Ben Schiller. Welcome to Opinionated. Today we're joined by Jeff Dorman, who is Chief Investment Officer at Arca, an important and influential crypto hedge fund. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Crypto and ARCA isn't your first gig in big-time investing. You have 17 years of trading and asset management experience. Congratulations, by the way, on your recent Series A raise. That must be good news. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's always nice to see a lot of very successful investors seeing the same vision that we see for the future of finance. And with their recent interest, uh, particularly institutional interest in Bitcoin, is raising money an easier proposition for you these days? Yeah, I mean, like raising money is never easy. We've been educating investors for you know over three years, right? We've got tens of thousands of institutional investors on our distribution list. We do a lot of educational content. Um, I think the last three months has certainly sped up people's sense of urgency. But the money has been lining up for a long time, and, and it's more than just Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, it gets everybody in the door. But there's a lot of other opportunities in this space from you know, equity-linked tokens to asset-backed tokens and other vehicles that institutional investors are starting to get really excited about. You wrote a piece for Coindesk laying out your feelings about 2020. And also, you did more of an outlook piece about 2021. And I want to focus on five of the ideas in that outlook. The first one is about the big kahuna about Bitcoin. And one of the predictions you make is that it's going to become a more useful form of money, i.e. it's going to go from being a store of value use case, which is the primary reason why people are investing in it now, to being something more useful, i.e. where we would use it to buy and sell things. Why do you have confidence in that prediction? I mean, haven't we sort of lost faith in this idea of Bitcoin being this thing we used to buy coffee with? Well, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if we'll ever be buying coffee necessarily with Bitcoin, but here's what I think. Bitcoin was evolutionary more so than revolutionary. It is a, an upgrade over things that we already know how to do. In the beginning, it's clearly going to be speculative. It's clearly going to be, we have to get this into as many people's hands as possible before anyone will use it. But at some point, we do hit that you know, Malcolm Gladwell tipping point where everybody has some Bitcoin. And once you have Bitcoin, you might stop comparing it to a dollar price and you might start comparing it to what it costs to buy a house or what it costs to buy clothes. And once people start thinking in Bitcoin terms, rather than in dollar terms or whatever you know, local fiat currency they're converting it into, then it starts to actually have some usefulness as a purchasing power and not just as store of value. And I don't know if that happens this year or next year or five years from now, but I do think that's ultimately where we're headed. We are headed to a point where you don't just own this on your balance sheet like micro strategy because you want to have investment gains. You own it on your balance sheet because it's actually a more useful way to spend and send money. 
Imagine MicroStrategy in five years making an acquisition on Saturday at noon, and the wire doesn't have to wait till Monday and three-day settlement. You can make an acquisition at noon on a Saturday, and the money clears in 10 minutes. So I do think that's where we're headed. Whether or not it happens this year or in five years is the bigger question. Do you think that B2B use case, which you just outlined, is more likely than the retail use case, the coffee use case? I think for sure right now, right? that's the lower hanging fruit. Um, I do think we can get to that coffee use case at some point in the future once you start to see better front end user interfaces that enable you to send and, and receive seamlessly without even thinking twice about it. You could say the same thing about email, right? Email was super clunky until the Hotmails and the Yahoos and the Gmails built better interfaces and you were able to send and receive directly from your phone. So I think as it gets easier to use, you might see some of the, more of those everyday purchases. Um, but it's certainly easier right now to think of this as a, a more B2B or at least a you know larger transaction type game. Let's move on to NFTs and gaming, which is one of your predictions. Why do you see this taking off now? I mean, we're seeing a lot of interest in the NFT art market, and there seems to be a lot of announcements in gaming. But maybe it's fair to say that this is a use case that people have been talking about for a while, and it hasn't quite happened. So why do you think this is a big year for NFTs? And uh, what sort of investable opportunities are you looking at? So first of all, the, the same factors that are driving the interest in Bitcoin are really driving the interest in NFTs as well, which is a low dollar, uh, low interest rates, inflation coming. That is basically telling the world, get out of cash, get out of bonds and get into something that's inflation protected and something that's a hard asset. That's why Bitcoin is running. That's why equities are running. That's why real estate, art, you know, you can even go to a local baseball card shop and see what's going on with a rookie Mike Trout card. It's happening everywhere and it's not going to stop happening. Why NFTs are so exciting now is that this is really probably the most natural non-money use case of blockchain, right? This idea of having something that's non-fungible that you own digitally that you can prove. And just like anything else, it takes a while before these things start to go mainstream. I don't think the NFT gaming thesis is any newer or different than it was a year ago, two years or three years ago. I just think that we're finally at a point where it's actually useful. I'm not sure it's going to happen at the platform level, um, you know, most of the gains in the Bitcoin world have come from the platform level, right? Or from the infrastructure level. It's been the exchanges, it's been the custodians. I think with NFTs, it's actually the opposite. I think the platforms and the places where you can trade and custody and send these things is not going to be where the growth is. I think it's actually going to be the individual NFTs themselves. I think it's going to be finding that rare needle in a haystack that accrues real value, just like finding a piece of art or finding a hot piece of real estate and things like that. What that means from an investing standpoint is it's more challenging, right? It's not as easy as just sort of buying the theme and hoping it all goes up. Like decentralized finance, for example, last year, it didn't really matter what you owned. As long as you owned a piece of it, you did well. I don't think that's going to be the case with NFTs. I think you are going to have to do a little more digging. You're going to have to understand product market fit. It might look a little bit more like movie studios. If you've ever been involved in financing a movie, 90% of them fail. And then one of them is an absolute home run. And I think that's likely what you'll see here. And there will be funds and investors who you know, carve out a niche, really understanding how to value uh, these individual NFTs. Have you done that kind of analysis to work out what the blockbusters might be? Yeah, we have. And, and we've been slow to invest in this space uh, for that reason. We've actually only made a couple of, of investments thus far uh, in that space. In the NFT space specifically, we have invested in a company called Axie Infinity, which has a token AXS. Axie is a game where, you know, like a lot of other metaverse or, or, or virtual reality type worlds, you can build your own characters and then you can fight and you can buy land and do transactions. Um, why this is so interesting from an NFT standpoint is 
eventually these games will all be interoperable. You no longer have to build this great character and be completely stuck in that game forever. Now you can build a great character and potentially bring that character to another game. That's why NFTs are so exciting is that you can create this value and no longer be at the mercy of the game where you built it. You can use that same asset in other places. So we're looking for things like that. The reason we like Axie so much is not only is the game fun and is it taking off and the metrics are supporting insane growth, but the AXS token was designed to capture that value. You actually use the AXS token on the platform, but also every single transaction that happens in the game from spending to build up your Axie or buying land or transacting with others, a little bit of that accrues to the Axie treasury. And you as the AXS token holder basically own that treasury. It's an asset-backed token. That's interesting. I mean, we did a piece uh, a while ago focusing on the Philippines, these big kind of communities of people playing Axie and getting these small rewards during COVID. Do you think there is a COVID effect here where we're all inside and more likely to maybe play a digital game like this? I mean, first of all, I saw that piece and it was terrific. So kudos to you and your team. I think the answer is is yes, but it was happening anyway, right? The, the way I think about digitization for gaming and sports is that we were heading in this direction anyway. Um, you know, you could see the rise of esports happening for the last 10 years, right? That didn't just happen in March because of the pandemic. What has changed is the ability to think of this no longer as just a fun game. Now people are starting to think of it as a career or a way to actually monetize their skill set. Esports, like we said, is super popular because people actually could see it as a career. Well, now it doesn't even have to be a career. Now you can just make your money as a general gamer from your house, even if you have a separate career. And that's why these NFTs and the idea of having real value uh, tied to what your skill level in the game is, is so important. Fantastic. Web3 then, decentralized web. You argue that there is a growing distrust of institutions, a growing distrust of middlemen, uh, whether that's financial or internet-based. But again, I mean, Web3 is a, is a kind of a big idea of this space. And, and why now is, is the question I would ask. I mean, we saw a lot of activity in DeFi last year, but do we see the same kind of activity building on the non-financial web in terms of Web3? Sorry, a bit of a long question, but I mean, <laughs> is the, are the events of last week, for instance, uh, more likely to push people towards a decentralized web type uh, infrastructure. I mean, where these powerful individuals have control over social networks and can de-platform people, is, is that more likely to lead people to embrace these new ideas? Sure. I mean, look, you, you could go back to Occupy Wall Street 10 years ago and see that there's been social unrest and there's been lack of trust in banks and institutions, right? This is like you said, this is not a new concept. What's new is sometimes you have a concept, but you don't have a solution. And sometimes you have a solution, but the concept isn't that important. What I think has changed in the last 12 months is you now have both at the same time, right? You have this complete lack of trust in institutions, this complete lack of willingness to kind of turn all of your data and all of your personal items over to these big middlemen, um, whether that's banks or whether that's uh, social media, you know, it's all sort of the same. Um, you, you know, even something like the pushback you see on, on, on you know, AWS. There is a pushback that's been happening for 10 years. The difference is you now have a viable solution. What that means is you're, you're going to start seeing people and institutions and investors start to gravitate more towards how do we actually solve that problem. You take the events of the last few weeks, and that to me, that's just a culmination of 10 years of unrest. And I don't necessarily think that that means that every single Web3 project is immediately going to take off. But what it does is it starts to get the investors really interested. And once the investors get interested, these companies and projects are more capitalized. And once they're more capitalized, then they can start working on 
not just the tech, but also the marketing and the distribution and all the other things that is required to get these things to become more mainstream. Again, I don't think this is DeFi this year. I don't think this is just, you know, buy a basket of 10 random coins that have DeFi attached to it and all of a sudden you're going to do well. I think there's going to be a lot more token selection here, a lot more research in understanding which of these projects and platforms are going to do the best. But I think there's going to be a lot happening this year. And for instance, like one of the projects that we're invested in is Arweave, which offers permanent decentralized storage solutions. You know, the idea of you can no longer have censorship and you can't have a country or a company all of a sudden remove something. You know, this is a way of once it goes out there in the world, it's archived forever and timestamped forever and cannot be challenged or changed. That's the kind of thing that we believe could really take off when you have this complete mistrust everywhere and you have this just complete bifurcation or dichotomy of ideas, right? You've got one side who thinks something and can't be wavered. You see another side who thinks something and it's almost religious-like, right? You're not going to change people's minds. But what you can do is you can start storing and archiving this so that uh, you can refer back to it and, and no longer guess whether something is truthful or not. One interesting question to me anyway is, do we see established internet giants like Twitter moving to a more sort of decentralized model and maybe adopting some of the governance ideas in crypto, which would seem to be more transparent and more sort of democratic than what we have at the moment? Do you see a trend in that direction? No, I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I do see a trend of corporations trying to appease all of their stakeholders and not just their shareholders. And I'll get back to that in a second. But I don't think it means necessarily that they're going to go full decentralization. I mean, first of all, public governance is an experiment. And, and thus far, it's largely been a failure. To me, that's a failure because of incentives, right? Like when, you, when you're going to start seeing governance work is when there's real cash flows and real profits to fight over, right? That's why something like uh, Uniswap is so exciting from a governance standpoint. Because in March, two months from now, there's going to be a fee switch that basically says that of the, the 30 basis points that Uniswap extracts in revenue for every transaction, Right now, it all goes to the liquidity providers, but soon there's going to be a fee switch where five basis points goes to the token holders and 25 basis points is retained for the liquidity providers. That's where governance works because there's something actually worth fighting for, right? Uniswap does $400 million of annualized revenue, and that number is probably going to continue to grow. Nobody really cares about governance for the sake of governance unless it actually affects their bottom line. So I don't know if a Twitter or another social media platform will be able to succeed in governance for the sake of ideology. But I think if there's governance for the sake of you know, revenues or cash flows, it's another story. Now, heading back to why I think that there is going to be an impact on corporations with regard to their stakeholders, you know, look no further than the recent Airbnb IPO or the DoorDash IPO. Both of these companies generated hundreds of billions of dollars for investors. But think about what it took to build those companies. In Airbnb's case, you had regular homeowners and you had people who liked to vacation, you know, just regular everyday citizens. They didn't benefit at all from the Airbnb IPO. DoorDash, right? Who made DoorDash work? It's people who cook food. It's people who eat food. It's people who ride bikes and deliver food. Again, they didn't benefit financially at all from the DoorDash IPO. But with digital assets, we're starting to democratize the access to these, these growing companies. And more importantly, you're starting to spread out that wealth inequality because with the rise of digital assets, you now have your developers, your founders, your early investors, your customers, your liquidity providers. All of them are equally incentivized financially to help bootstrap the growth of a company. And when it does succeed the way an Airbnb or a DoorDash succeeds, all of a sudden that hundreds of billions of dollars doesn't just go you know, 90% of it to investors. It gets distributed across all of the people and who made that project work. So I do think you'll start to see decentralization in that sense. That's almost an ESG component, right? Uh, that, that's almost a giving back to society component more so than a governance component. 
That's really fascinating. One of your predictions here leads uh, perfectly on from that. You say that community tokens will outpace VC tokens. And what you mean by that is uh, a project like Link, for instance, which is community funded, will do better than a VC capital funded project like Compound, for instance. Do you think that the kind of open source approach to innovation is fundamentally more productive than the VC directed approach? Well, let me be clear. I know there's a lot of backlash on VCs. I am not anti-VC. I think the VCs actually are very forward thinking. I think they do a lot of good for digital assets as well as for other startups and other projects. What I'm getting at is not that there will be an anti-VC backlash itself, but that this idea of one small group of stakeholders owning the majority of the upside of a project is unlikely to be sustainable when you have this other way of doing it now where you just have a very small raise, kind of bootstrap the growth, and then ultimately distribute tokens to all these other stakeholders like we just said. You know, It's not an ideological thing. It's not a, oh, I'm not going to own this token because VCs funded it. It's more of a, what's the best way to get somebody to care about your project? It's to make people rich along the way. If I'm an early user of a company that I'm also incentivized financially to help grow, well, what does that mean? It means I'm going to become a much bigger customer than I probably would have otherwise. And I'm also going to become an evangelist and help get my friends and family and other people into the project. Financial incentives go a long way. So you know, I think you will start to see more of these community-backed projects where maybe they take a little bit of VC or outside funding, but for the most part, they try to bootstrap it as much as they can with their early customers. And all of a sudden, you start to create wealth and you've got the best marketing campaign ever because you've got hundreds of thousands of people who use your platform already and are financially incentivized to evangelize on your behalf. A slightly different question, which is that some people believe that an open source innovation model is inevitably more productive over time than a VC-directed one because you've got the wisdom of the crowd there. I mean, do you believe that beyond the kind of fairness question? Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to that though, right? Um, I I think you definitely get better idea generation that way, um, but you probably get poorer execution. Ideas are a dime a dozen. It's the ability to dismiss the bad ones and focus on the good ones and build. That's really hard. I think there's going to be some sort of an equilibrium there, right? Where fully decentralized doesn't work because all you're going to have is thousands of ideas and nobody actually organizing them together. And fully centralized VC probably doesn't work either because you have that customer bootstrapping problem. It's going to be somewhere in the middle where you do take these ideas and the contributions from all over, but you still have one or two or three people up top who are kind of directing and orchestrating. Now, eventually, when you get to a size of an Ethereum, you probably can go to a fully decentralized. But I think it's very hard to do in the early days. Um, you know, I've worked for several startups in addition to my long history at investment banks and broker dealers. You know, it's hard. It's hard to build a company in the early days because you, you sort of do need a leader. It's almost better to make a bad decision quickly than it is to hem and haw and never make a decision. So I'm not fully on board with early decentralization, but I do think that projects that start centralized with an idea of moving to decentralized are going to be home runs. Projects like you know what Uniswap did. Um, you know we're, we're talking to several others like uh, HXRO. Certainly, some of the exchanges like Binance and what they're trying to do with BNB. The idea of starting centralized and moving decentralized to me is probably going to be the right formula. Interesting. Another prediction is about India, which is a fascinating country, fascinating market, and uh, obviously massive amounts of people there. Potential for crypto companies. How do you see that playing out? Do you see that as a big kind of growth market for crypto going forward? Truthfully, that was a little bit of a throwaway in my 2021 predictions piece in the sense that it's going to be huge, but it's a very difficult one to make money on right now. First, you have to understand the culture of India. It is a very cash-based society. That doesn't necessarily mean people are trying to hide their transactions per se, but in some ways, they certainly don't want to be transparent about what they're doing. 
So it's going to take some time culturally for um, all of a sudden the entire community in, in India to move to this you know trackable, traceable blockchain type of methodology. That being said, you don't have to penetrate all of India to have a huge impact when you've got a billion people there, right? That's why you know the early Facebook Libra project was focused on India. You know that's why Binance has been so focused on getting into India. Whoever cracks it is going to make a killing, but it's going to be definitely difficult to crack. Final question: What most excites you about this industry, and what least excites you about this industry? Do you have any pet peeves going forward? <laughs> uh, I mean, look, anytime you dedicate uh, your entire life to an industry, you're going to have some things that rub you the wrong way. I look at this space from an investing standpoint, more so than from a development standpoint. I take absolutely nothing away from the, the software developers and the engineers and the technologists who basically created digital assets out of nothing. But where I fit into this picture is more from an investing standpoint and how uh, you can further it along through the capital markets. I think what bothers me about this industry is just this is probably the first real revolutionary or, or, or evolutionary idea that has coexisted with social media. And as a result, you just have an incredible amount of misinformation out there and you know, pseudo-celebrities who have the ear of everyone and probably aren't the right spokespeople for the industry. So I speak to investors all day, every day. And a lot of times they come in with such a misunderstanding of what this industry is just because of who they heard it from or what they heard. It's almost like if you're a golf pro and you, you meet somebody with a bad golf swing, you know, after a couple of lessons, you might just decide, you know what, this is unfixable. I'd rather just turn you around to the other side and start over. <laughs> That's a lot of what we're doing in this space. And it's challenging, right? It's challenging because this is such a difficult industry to understand. I've invested in just about every region, every asset class, every uh, sector that exists. And I, I can't tell you that I've ever had one like digital assets where it's been this much work to understand it and really understand the nuances between a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin versus a platform or protocol like Ethereum versus an asset back token like Nexus Mutual versus a pass through or revenue generating token like a Uniswap or a Sushi. It's very challenging, right? It's, it's like the fixed income market where there's just so many wrinkles to the different investments that you can't just say you're a fixed income investor. You have to say, well, do I look at senior secured bonds or sub bonds or you know, callable bonds or munis or govies or corporates? That's really where we are right now. That would be my only frustration is undoing some pretty awful narratives that are out there. But in terms of what I'm excited about is basically the opposite of what I just said. The fact that this is such a new and growing and evolving industry and there's so few people in it is what makes uh, what I do for a living so impactful, right? I mean, the sweet spot for active management is a growing and evolving opportunity set with a completely static investor base. <laughs> and that's what we have right now, right? There's, you know, the oak trees and the Aries and the Blackstones of the world are not in this space yet. But we are, and we can identify these investment opportunities, and we can help fund them, and we can help grow them, and we can make a ton of money for ourselves, our LPs, and like I said, ultimately the community before anybody from traditional finance even wakes up to what this asset class is. Well, I would say uh, your columns for Coindesk are the opposite of uh, sort of nonsense on Twitter. You uh, do a great job of demystifying and explaining. So thanks very much for that, and thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Well, I re really appreciate that, and uh, best of luck in 2021. Excited to see where we go. Thanks very much. All right, thank you. Please check out Jeff Dorman's pieces on Coindesk.com, and we'll post them with the show page today. And thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time.